Hey, thanks for tuning in to the EWB Podcast. We've got a great episode with actor Tony Chung today, talking about his life journey starting with his humble roots in our hometown, pursuing a dream of music, entering the world of modeling, and finally, his role as a series regular in what to expect on the upcoming TV show, Kung Fu. Now, for those of you tuning in for the first time, I should know that this is a not-for-profit podcast, and all editing and creative control was done by yours truly. So if you happen to be so blown away by the content you're about to hear and want to find a way to fund my podcast, just don't. Instead, take that money, along with your life savings, and go to Vegas. Put it all on black, and if you happen to win, I'll graciously take half of your winnings. And with that, here's Tony. This, this, this exercise produced by Tone. T-O-L-N-N-E. We'll teach you some of the basics of construction, operation, and programming. A note. I wish I had that when I was in school. Let's continue. We are live here on the EWB podcast. Thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Emil Wang, and I'm joined today by a new guest to the pod, a very good friend of mine, uh, an engineer, a musician, an entrepreneur, a model, motion capture extraordinaire for Sub-Zero in the Mortal Kombat series, and uh, now a series regular on the upcoming television show, Kung Fu. Mr. Tony Chung, how are you? I'm great, man. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, man. That's my that's my boy Emil right there. I appreciate it. And thanks for the flattering intro, obviously. I was kind of debating with myself, you know, is series regular an appropriate term to call you? Or are you a franchise cornerstone? I mean, what what should we be considering you? I am the Kung Fu. Did you not get the memo, bro? <laughs> You're right. I'm sorry. No, You're yeah. publicist. Uh, <laughs> so. so I guess the official term is series regular. Um, yeah, then why am I wasting me. my time talking to you? I mean, I, I know. I, exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> get, yeah. Get, um, thanks, man. Yeah. It's yeah. The right. interview I, I've ever done. It. Yeah. Cool. Right, I'll see you later. <laughs> get, get me to see Ma while you're at it. Is this I, the uh, Zach Galifianakis show I'm on? <laughs> it may as well be. Uh, but seriously, thanks for being on. And, you know, you and I go back many, many years to our days, you know, at Limbrook High School. Uh, we kind of reconnected while I was living in New York, or when both of us were living in New York, we got a play some play some hoops together so it, it's been really cool to uh be a part of your journey over the years but kind of want to start with your roots you know your background is not much more different than mine immigrant parents from taiwan um you had some time in texas too right yeah i was born in texas small town yeah. Louisville, right outside dallas oh okay uh, yeah and i grew up in austin uh bounced back and forth between austin and the bay area in california and eventually mm-hmm sort of settled in the Bay Area. Nice, nice. Yeah, that, that's, I, I do remember that. You know, Evan and I were born in Houston and we uh, we spent some time in Austin. So I do remember some kind of Texas connection there. But yeah, but yeah, you ended up at Limbrook High School, just like me and, you know, a bunch of other kids with similar backgrounds. And you obviously were always a lot more artistic and talented than many of us. But when it came to choosing colleges and kind of the the career path that you wanted, you still started with hopes of being an engineer, right? I I remember you telling me that uh, you had some, you know, baller scholarship at San Jose, right? Yeah, it was interesting, the process by which that happened, because to be totally frank, I 
junior, senior year of high school, choosing like an engineering discipline to study in college was not really my calling. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I was a kid, I was really into electronics. I was, I remember I was really obsessed with motors for some reason when I was a little kid and like uh, Legos and building out electronic circuits and things Mm -hmm. of that nature. But as I grew older, I got more more and more interested in the arts uh, with music and, you know, even like web design, which is to a certain degree, computer science and engineering, but it's more of the design element of web design that I was interested in. So senior year of high school, to be totally frank, as far as I can remember, all I wanted to do was be in a band, play music and be (laughs) able to write music and tour and do that for a living. But having conservative Asian parents who, you know, wanted the best for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a lot of friction at the time when I was in high school because I had all these band posters in my, my bedroom. (laughs) I was bleaching my hair half the time. I was, you know, yeah, I was like, uh, like slits in my eyebrows because I couldn't get an eyebrow ring because I get kicked out of the house. So I was very, very thick (laughs) in like alternative rock music at the time. And, uh, Mm -hmm. but you know, my parents were like, listen, like, you should get an engineering degree so that you have something to fall back on if music mm-hmm. doesn't work out, right? And yeah. I, I think that seriously. Yeah. I, you know, I agree, I agree. And what happened was I, I got into UCLA and I was stoked to mm-hmm. go there and I was ready to play on Third Street Promenade with bandmates, you know, and mm-hmm. busk and, and do, do the whole music thing. Um, but what happened was I got, yeah, I got this full ride scholarship to San Jose State University uh, for electrical engineering. And given that it's in the heart of Silicon Valley, you know, my parents were like, listen, I I wasn't, you know, I had applied for it, not really thinking much about it. But once I got awarded the scholarship, and I think it was, I don't remember, maybe like four or five of them awarded a year or something like that. It was, it was very coveted, right? But I, my parents were like, listen, if you take the scholarship, then we'll give you like a stipend every semester that you can use towards whatever you want. And for me, that was music. So, you know, that sounded pretty enticing. Um, And I was, again, ready to go to UCLA, but because of that whole offer, if you will, from my parents, I was like, all right, you know what? Um, I can use that money towards buying amplifiers and guitars and keyboards and recording equipment. All right, you know what, I'll do that. And so that's what I did. You know, I studied electrical engineering uh, and then, you know, I'd be like recording music when I'm not, you know, studying or in class. Yeah. Yeah. And actually something just came to me. Your, your brother was a Berkman material scientist also. I, I just remember that's right. That. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's what you studied, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember you guys were in the same program at the same school, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a couple of years older than me. And I, and I, from what I remember, I think he actually did more with the material sciences aspect of uh, his uh, degree. Well, quite frankly, material sciences isn't interesting, so we're, we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, the sad thing is I don't apply any of my college education to what I do. Um, but, you know, I, I think going back to the point that your parents were making is you, know, you can always fall back on the engineering degree it, it, not necessarily, you know, the actual engineering concepts that you that you learned in school that you know, kind of comes in one year and goes out the other most of the time. But the fact that you have one, I think, you know, opens up a lot of doors for you, regardless of what you do, I think. Totally, totally. And, you know, honestly, going through a college program, 
You know, if it's not exactly what you envisioned in terms of learning day in, day out about something that you are truly passionate about, um, if anything, it helps you. It could also help you, you know, distinguish between what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Yeah, there are plenty mm-hmm. of examples. I think I always think of Carly Fiorina, who was uh, for a while, I believe, the CEO of eBay. And she, um, I think she studied medieval studies. I think that was her bachelor's. Yeah, don't quote me on that. Google that. But, you know, something definitely not related to what she ended up ended up being known for, right? She's like, you know, one of these powerhouses in terms of leaders in Silicon Valley. I'm not sure what she's doing now, but I know she has a track record of being in executive positions of top tech companies. And I thought that was so inspiring. And, and, and that's what I mean. You know, you, you may go through this program, you may enjoy it, you may not, but at the very least, you'll start to develop you know, an idea of what you do want to do in your life. And they may, that may take going through a number of ventures, whether it's a college degree or, you know, working at a number of different startups or, you know, all these sorts of experiences for you to really finally understand, oh, this is what I was built for. This is what gets me excited when I wake up in the morning. But without those experiences, you would never know. Yeah. And to that point, you finished school or I I can't remember if you went to Taiwan before you finished or the opportunity kind of came up uh, afterwards. But, you know, you you went through school and this opportunity to go to Taiwan and become a pop star came up. So I'm curious to hear how that opportunity came up and how you pivoted from the engineering to doing this. Yeah, my goal ever since probably early uh, probably freshman or sophomore year of high school is to be in a band, play music, and be able to write, play, and perform music for life. You know that that was mm-hmm. basically my life's calling. Very, very crystal clear to me. So, you know, while studying engineering in college, I still knew that that was my ultimate goal. That I wanted to make that my life and be able to generate revenue and income from music, whatever that may be. And so, you know, I was recording music, I was writing stuff for my, I guess, my own library at the time. And after high school, the bands that I was in, you know, we dispersed, you know, people went different, different ways for college. And so I was doing a lot of solo stuff. And I remember, I think it was freshman or sophomore year of college, my mom uh, sent me this article in the local Chinese newspaper saying that mm-hmm. there was some singing competition in the Bay Area. You know, there's like a pretty large Asian population in the Bay Area. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. So you have these these companies um, that, you know, have, you know, newspaper publications as well as these events. And one of these events was actually a singing songwriting competition. And I was very intrigued because I had some exposure, limited exposure to music from that part of the world uh, through my cousin uh, when I was in high school and you know i heard some pretty cool music like pretty progressive cool uh music coming out of that part of the world uh, specifically taiwan at the time and i was like you know what like i'm happy to pivot and try this out to you know if i can potentially make this you know my career if it means going to asia to do this fine again my goal is to be a musician as for my career, you know? And so anyway, I decided to enroll in this contest and I, you know, I performed a song um, and I covered like one or two songs and 
you know, and I think I got to the semifinals and I, you know, I'm a very competitive person. So mm -hmm. when I got to the semifinals and I didn't make it to the very end, I was like, all right, now I got the, I caught the bug. I'm going to win the next one. And I sort of self-reflected on, okay. Oh, okay. So I chose a rock song this time around, but it seems like pop ballads are the way to go. Like that's what gets, uh, that's what's worked in that part of the world for a really, really long time. Okay. So I'm going to do a pop ballad next time. And you know what? I'm going to strut my guitar playing skills and my ability to create musical arrangements and like a backtrack for my, for my song. So instead of using like an existing karaoke track, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to create my own backtrack and I'm going to let the judges know that I made the, the backtrack that I'm singing to. So a few weeks go by, a few months, and then another one came along and it was a bigger one. And this one, <laughs> I believe the number one, uh, the person who wins will actually have a record contract to release an album in Taiwan. I was like, dude, this is it. This is the one. Yeah, and yeah. so I remember I was in the dorm at the time and I was using my, my eight track or 16 track Tascam uh, machine. I was, I was recording these backtracks and I put together a Mandarin song and an English song and I sort of merged them into one. And uh, yeah, and I, I performed, I, I did my thing and I ended up winning that competition and um, got a record contract to release an album in Taiwan. So it was actually, to answer your question, it was sort of midway through college that I mm -hmm. actually um, took a slight hiatus, went back. You know, we did a lot of the recording in the Bay Area and Palo Alto actually. And then we uh, eventually went back to Taiwan to, uh, to start setting up shop and talking with record labels and such. So uh, yeah, man. It's crazy to, to, to think about all this because I haven't thought about it for so freaking long. <laughs> yeah, Tone. I, I remember that. Tone 657, <laughs> yeah. right? That's hey. a, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that, my that, God. Yeah. That, album, that album is, is somewhere in my, uh, in my CD collection <laughs> that unfortunately um, doesn't get used because who has CD players anymore? You know, um, I should mint that into an NFT and put it on the blockchain. Oh, you should. <laughs> you put anything in the... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, on the blockchain, it'll, it'll make money, I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> um, but before we digress, I'm sure listeners will want to know, are, are you a Lee Home guy or a Jay Chow guy or a David Tao guy? Ooh, that's a great question. Wow, that's a tough one. I got to say, I'm probably Jay Chow. And I say that because I feel like there's a certain self-awareness to Jay that, <laughs> Jay that that the other two sometimes, sometimes, I'm not taking anything away from, from Wang Li Hong and David Tao, but sometimes there's a self-awareness that there's a discipline with Jay, I should say, in, in that he stays in his lane. He knows mm. what he's about, how people perceive him, how that relates to the products that he puts out in the form of sonic frequencies. And he's able to continuously release music that satisfies his customer base. And I say that because sometimes I believe, and I, and I respect someone like Wang Li Hong for taking risks. I mean, he will go out of his comfort zone to create literally new genres. And I say new genres. That, yeah. yeah. I'm talking about new genres that, that may not even exist. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. I have a lot of respect for him for that, but at the same time, some of that stuff didn't, you know, it's just this track record. It's like, it's like Michael Jordan, you know, like Michael Jordan throughout his, his, prime i would say at the very least he's like night in night out man he's going to give you 25 to 30 and i'm talking every night and there's a consistency there of, mm -hmm. of high quality output yeah. um, that i see in someone like jay chow 
there's a lot of discipline, self-control, and again, self-awareness that is required to consistently churn out high quality output. And I think he sustained that for a really long time. So I got a lot of respect for him for that. Mm-hmm. So, God, so it's Jay, not like a freaking VC dude uh, here, man. Talking <laughs> about talking about Taiwanese pot. Yeah, there you go. High quality, <laughs> sustainable output is hey, what I'm looking for. Synergy, synergy. Throw that you know, word synergy. in there. It's got to be uh, synergistic, just, you know, between uh, the synthesizers. And dis- <laughs> you know, they got to disrupt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he did disrupt. That's exactly what he did. He's got. He's had a profound influence in my life. I have to say. I mean, I don't listen to his music as much, obviously, like in recent years, but. He, you know, he's, uh, he inspired, I think many, many people in the world. And he, he's a, he was a game changer, man. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's the Michael Jordan of uh, Taiwanese pop and uh, Lee home and, uh, and David Tower, what Tyler hero, or what, what do we got? <laughs> <laughs> Tyler hero. Um, <laughs> hey, when it's all said and done, you know, maybe, yeah. well, maybe Tyler hero, man, he may have three, four he championships under his belt. Yeah, he might be the goat. Who knows? Too young to he, tell. Hey, you know, dude, what is he? 21? Uh, I, I think he's 21. Yeah. He's only in his second year. So in Taiwan, you were a solo performer for a little bit. And then at some point you joined a previous guest on this pod, Lee Wei Lan uh, in Cool Silly. Um, mm-hmm. how, how was that experience? What, what was that like? And, you know, in terms of just trying to make it in a very tough industry as it is in a country where, you know, you learning the language. I mean, not, not to say that you can't speak Mandarin, but being born here and growing up here, you don't have a grasp on it as everyone else would. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I would say in retrospect, going into that arena that is Taiwanese pop, um, having grown up in places like Texas and California and America, it, it was It was ambitious. And I say that because at the time I didn't think it was ambitious. And I (laughs) didn't think it was ambitious at the time because I was naive and I had that American mindset of like, you could, you could fucking do this, man. Like, (laughs) like you got this, you are talented. You could do this, you know? And, and in retrospect, it was, it was a challenge. You're entering an environment that first of all has a, you know, a very formulaic pop almost like an algorithm that has worked and has continued to be funded by the record labels through the years that, you know, it's a very karaoke, karaoke culture, right? Like that's where people go on the weekends. You go and you sing these pop ballads. So you need to have hooks. You need to have choruses that are in 4-4 time that don't change key, that um, follow the traditional, you know, pop formula. And what I was trying to do was not that. I was trying to break new boundaries with my solo work. Uh, and I was really proud of that, but there were a number of challenges, right? So I didn't speak the language that well. So on the one hand, I feel a little bit almost pompous to think that I could enter another country and just learn a language and write music for, for the audiences there. I mean, that feels almost a little bit pretentious uh, in retrospect at the time, yeah. I didn't feel that way. But at the same time, I put in a lot of work to learn the language. I took Chinese classes. I had oodles of flashcards that I would write myself to learn the phrases and learn how to write, you know, words. And now I'm, you know, pretty proficient. I can speak fluently um, to a certain extent and I can Mm -hmm. read and I can type and I can write uh, basically what I can speak. So, uh, you know, I really put in the work and I, and so there, there are two, two sides to that coin. 
but you know, I've also, I also learned when I was there, you know, I was there for, what, I don't know, at least like six, seven years. You know, I learned that like, there's mm-hmm. a very big, uh, you know, once you get past the language element of being in a foreign country, there's a whole next level that's culture. And until you actually go through that, it's hard to, it's hard to describe, but it, there's, a, there's all these subtleties and cultural nuances that, yeah, you could read about in a book or you could hear about through someone, but to actually live through them and to actually be able to, you know, for that to come out of you as a person, it takes time, you know? And so um, I would say it probably wasn't until year four or five that I was getting into that mix in terms of, okay, like I get all the little subtle cues and and social cues when I'm having conversations with locals uh, in Taiwan and people. And I, I remember, you know, you would start hearing feedback. Oh, wow. You like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you don't need to explain this. You don't explain that. Like all these little inside things. Right. And, and so the compounding of learning all these cultural uh, components, you know, was, was, I don't know. There's something so invaluable about that. And to apply that to other areas of your life, uh, whether it be relationships or things that you're learning, that's been something I've been trying to, uh, I've been leveraging and remembering to use that, what I learned through learning Chinese and and learning the culture in Taiwan and other parts of my life, you know? And so um, I totally forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, you answered it perfectly. It was, what did you learn in Taiwan? And I, I was going to say, you know, a lot of those lessons, despite, you know, and we use this term culture fairly loosely in, in your case of being in Taiwan, it was a nationality and then also kind of an industry. I, I'm sure you're applying those same lessons to what you're doing in your modeling career and now in your acting career. So it, it's yeah. really it's really cool to hear you reflect on that and to have that maturity to realize that n- number one it it, it is um, so, somewhat pompous to go in to to feel like you'll own that shit, hundred <laughs> like, percent. But also to reflect on you know how um, really what it would have taken to or what it took to assimilate and for you to take on that challenge when you were there. I, I think it's all very admirable, and I'm glad you learned that lesson. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Humility, that's that's the name of the game, you know, being yeah. self-aware and being humble. And I think yeah. one other thing that um, that a takeaway from Taiwan was also just like this survival mentality, because in the music industry, anyone who's gone through being in a band for a number of years or, or, or trying to make music a career, a career is that um, it's very difficult, you know, and, and you don't make a lot of money. It's not like a constant stream of income. You know, you could write a, what you think is a beautiful tune um, one day and then it just never goes anywhere for or doesn't go anywhere for years and years and years and maybe never, you know. And so there's a survival mentality that I really had to come to grips with in Taiwan where it's like, OK, I'm in I'm doing music, but I need to have some steady source of income. So, you know, you pivot and you go into entrepreneur mode and you have, so, you know, I was doing things like I was selling, I would, you know, go to the 
the night markets in Taiwan, not for this reason, but while I'm there with, you know, friends, I start seeing like, oh, these cool products that are being sold in the, in the, in the, in the night market and having grown up in America, I know these things are not, you know, available in like other parts of the world. Okay. Well, what if I like do an arbitrage thing where like I buy some of these things in bulk and I'm selling them on a platform online and ship them overseas. So I had like a business for a while doing that was actually really lucrative. And then I was running a web design business uh, for a while. And then I was like teaching guitar lessons to locals for a while. So I was doing all these like these side hustles to keep the dream that that was music alive. And I think that survival mentality really uh, helped me. I mean, not that I didn't appreciate money at the time, but it really cemented this, this understanding of what it feels like to not have uh, much of your bank account. And I think that's so important, you know, because then when you do, you know, this is not, this doesn't come easy and that you gotta, you know, whether it's investing or uh, just, you know, being mindful of your expenses, uh, budgeting, all these things. I think it really helped me cement those principles into my daily lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I think it's funny that you went from, you know, uh, I don't want to say making ends meet, but uh, it it sounds like some, some financial challenges and, you know, working hard to kind of stay afloat in Taiwan to, to New York City, which is probably even more expensive than life in Taiwan. So I'm curious, what guided that decision? Well, that was actually going to New York was, okay, so I was in Taiwan for, I don't know, maybe five or six years straight. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, like I had the occasional trip to Hong Kong to see my my dad or do a visa run, or I'd go to, I don't know, fly to Japan with my with a friend for like, you know, a few days or whatever. But, but I stayed in that part of the world for a good number of years. So finally, after we had started seeing some success as a band, you know, we decided to take a trip back home to have a little break before we start the next leg of the tour. And so we flew to LA and then my ex and I flew from LA to New York. I had been in New York like once uh, in mm-hmm. high school uh, for like, you know, I don't know, four or five days. Like um, other than that, I didn't know much about New York city, but my ex at the time uh, went to Parsons. So she was like, oh, look, mm-hmm. let's, let's, yeah, let's do this, you know? And so we did. And then it was supposed to be, I believe a two or three week trip. We had a return ticket to LA and back to Taiwan. And when we were there, long story short, uh, one of my band members ran into a, a hiccup where, you know, if we went back to Taiwan, he would have to go to the military, which would yeah. mean over a year potentially of yeah. not being able to do music. So having yeah. been in our late twenties at the time, it was like, all right, this is prime time. This is probably not the, you know, and we had, we had some reservations about whether Taiwan was the right place for us because we were trying to create quote unquote innovative music. And, and that, to my point earlier about how there was a formulaic pop element to what's being funded by record labels there. We had flirted with the idea of doing music elsewhere. So, you know, this seemed like a sign and I was in New York and I told them, listen, let's, uh, let's lay low for a second. Let's figure out what we're going to do. And I think it was literally the next day I was at a boba shop on St. Mark's place in the East. <laughs> yeah, I remember this story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. New York city in this, and this dude walks up to me and, you know, I was sitting there and he told me to stand up like in a very teddy bear voice. It was not, he was, it wasn't like he was trying to start a fight or anything, but so I stood up and then I was wearing a beanie. He said, yo, take your beanie off, man. 
I took my beanie off and said, yo, man, you got nice cheekbones. And I was like, <laughs> oh, uh, literally no. I mean, in my head, I was thinking literally no one's ever said this to me, but okay, thanks. And uh, he's like, hey, man, you ever think about modeling? And I was like, uh, no, not really. But, you know, he's like, oh, man, you do really well, man. Hey, yo, here's my business card. Give me a call, man. Uh, I think you do really well. I was like, all right, okay, whatever. I took his card and I didn't think much of it. You know, I've gotten a number of comments through the years about, hey, are you a model, blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. I never took it seriously. But I was thinking then I thought to myself, okay, so this happened yesterday where my band is effectively not going to be a thing for a while. AKA music is not going to be a thing for a while. Um, I had already started thinking about what's going to be my next thing. This guy sees me in a shop, gives me his business card. I'm in the Mecca of the modeling (laughs) world in New York city. I've been told a number of times through the years that, Hey, are you a model? You should consider modeling. So I was like, all right, you know what? I should at least like, I should at least open the store to see what's behind this curtain. Right. So Mm. I sent him an email and he's like, yo, come into the office. I'll take a few Polaroids of you. Polaroids. Yeah, they call them Polaroids in the modeling industry. Oh, okay. They're not literally Polaroids. Oh, okay. It's one of those like legacy things that they just never changed the name. Okay. You know what I mean? Of like, yeah. so so basically, take some pictures of me, right? Yeah. And um, you know, see if my clients feel the same way about your potential as I do. I was like, okay, sure, yeah, you know, I'll do that. I'm cool with that. So we're in the office. He took a few shots, and um, he's like, "All right, man, I'll, I'll I'll let you know, man. Thanks for coming in." And I think it was a few days later, he sent me and he called me and he was like, listen, man, I just booked you a, uh, a sh- uh, photo, a, a modeling job with Steven Mizell. Google him. He's like the Steven Spielberg of the fashion industry. Now it's going to be a two day shoot at the Brooklyn Transit Museum for Vogue Italia. It's a cover shoot. I was like, holy shit, Jesus. what the heck? And, you know, I've been in the music industry long enough to know that, like, if, you, if I haven't, you know, don't sign anything until you're like 100 percent. Right. Yeah. And so I told him, I was like, look, I didn't sign anything. I, I, I'm, I don't know if I want to commit. He's like, no, no, just listen. You do the two-day job. You keep the paycheck for this job. There are going to be plenty of models on this shoot, all veterans. Why don't you go there, see if you like it. And, um, you know, if you like it, then uh, we, we'll, we could talk about maybe uh, signing a contract. And I was like, all right, you know what? That's fair. This guy's, this guy's giving me like a trial run to see if like this is something I want to do. He's showing me what he could book me. Long story short, I did it and um, talked to all the models, asked like tons of questions and turned out, you know, this is a legitimate industry. This guy who scouted me is a legitimate and you can make some good money from it. So I decided to go for it. <laughs> I was going to say, and that's the story of how uh, I started seeing you on uh, Banana Republic ads and banners and H&M and stuff like that. It was, it's wild, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and obviously, no secret that you you were a good looking dude. You know, you looked like uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro. Um, I, I think that was that was his name, That's right? Totally subjective. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I never thought that. Um, you know, you not that I would say I never thought you would make it as a model. I, I was just always surprised that that was something that you pursued. You know, in the beginning of. When I first started modeling, I think it was around 2000, probably May of 2011. What really appealed to me at the time, and I'm not going to beat around the bush about this, is just, listen, I had gone through what, six, seven years at least of, of loving my life as a musician, but also just trying to make ends meet. I couldn't, mm-hmm. I would go with my, with a date on a dinner, to, to a dinner at a restaurant, and I would have to like, 
limit myself to certain options. And I'm not talking about a fancy restaurant. I'm just talking about, a, you know, your standard restaurant. And so, and, and, and not be able to pay for my date, which is, just feels horrible, you know? And so <laughs> it, it, going from that sort of a lifestyle where I'm, I'm literally checking my bank account all the time because I'm not sure if I'll be able to make the next meal to, hey, you're getting paid thousands of dollars for a one day job. And you're going to, you know, it's just like, wait, what? Really? Like it was very, I couldn't wrap my head around that. That was great. And, you know, I realized after being in the music industry for so many years, um, you realize that, you know, you really need to, yeah, and this goes for any business really, whether it's, you know, you mentioned engineering and music, it's like in both of these fields and so many other ones too, it's like, you have to have a niche that you, you sort of fulfill, right. In order to have like a competitive edge. So if I'm writing music, that's similar to XYZ artists. Well, what's your competitive advantage? Like, how are you different, right? Similar in like, I don't know, in Silicon Valley, like, okay, like there's Uber, there's Lyft. Okay, so you're another like ride shared company. Okay, how do you differentiate yourself from Uber and Lyft, right? And so I think what worked for modeling was this niche, right? I, I started to learn month after month, year after year, I started to realize wait a second, there aren't that many people that look like me in this industry. And I think I was also extremely fortunate and lucky in the, in the uh, sense that timing-wise, Asian men, first of all, the male, the men's fashion category was blossoming and on the, on the rise. So mm -hmm. that's number one. Number two, is that, okay, we're seeing more inclusivity, more diversity in the fashion world, as well as in the entertainment world at large. So I really benefited from those trends uh, and, and the timing was not impeccable, but it was definitely uh, to my advantage. So I started to realize that through the, oh, that's why these people are hiring me for this job and that job. And, oh, there I've met literally the other four or five Asian guys who are who are booking as much as I am. So yeah, I would say modeling in that respect was very uh, cathartic in that way. Also, being able to travel was just fucking uh, phenomenal. Yeah. You know, like I my my mentality at the time was was from a business perspective. Like, okay, listen, I'm not getting any younger. You know, with each passing day, I I'm not literally getting older. And and I'm in this modeling world. Yes, men are generally have a potentially on average, a longer lifespan as a model than women do. But um, my thing was like, look, I don't know how long I'm going to be doing this, A, and B, I don't know how long I'm going to be in demand. So while I'm doing this, I might as well, you know, scale up uh, as much as I can. So, you know, I went to Europe and I, uh, you know, I physically met these agencies in London and Paris and Milan and Hamburg, you know, landed these agencies locally in those markets so that when I'm in New York, they can still shop me to their clients. And so I was really lucky to be able to do a ton of traveling because apparently in Europe, I guess, you know, they, I was offering something that they wanted. And so the traveling aspect by far has been such a lovely sort of byproduct of this whole experience as well. Yeah. 
that's super cool. I, and, and I would argue that, you, you, you know, there, there's a billion of us out there. We're all interchangeable. So don't, don't think you're hot shit. Okay, Tony. <laughs> I mean, we all look the same, right? Yeah, exactly. Dude, cut that out. Cut that out. What I just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's really cool that I, I think you, know, you reflected on this and took this opportunity and you threw a number out there for, you know, what, what you're making. I'm, I would have never thought it would be that much. That's very impressive. And, uh, <laughs> you know, one thing I remember about you and, you know, kind of going back to this discussion of, you know, kind of making ends meet in New York. And, um, I, I most certainly was in the same boat as well. I remember the first month or so that you were here, or I want to say here, I've, I've been in Seattle for seven years now. Um, the first month <laughs> that you were in New York, we met up and I remember you being so stoked about the, like, two slices of pizza for 99 cents or something like uh, like those <laughs> kinds of deals at those random pizza shops where they don't even use real cheese. Like, bro, I was uh, poor, man. <laughs> no, I mean, I was eating the same places too, but uh, you were, you were two the first... bros, one pizza. No, <laughs> two bros, one. Is that two bros, one slice, two bros, one pizza. I don't. Uh, some One of those. Uh, yeah. Two. It is two bros something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, people, locals just call it two bros. Right? Yeah. There is yeah. no like second part to it. <laughs> but I remember it being a great deal, and I was like, "Yeah, Tony, like that's uh, that, dude." Yeah, it was such a good deal, it. and it was so delicious. Yeah, <laughs> and our bodies are probably paying for it now. You know, many years later, hundred <laughs> percent. Well, speaking of opportunities, I want to get into kung fu. Thanks for the assist. You're a kung fu butt kicking hero. On the A list, you There's a girl. She's in trouble. I stepped in. Stepped in. More like punching cake. I've lived with this stuff. You took down an army by yourself. You basically walked on air. It was physics. This is what I meant to do. Kung Fu. New series starts Wednesday. As we discussed earlier in the podcast, you are a series regular on the upcoming television series Kung Fu. Uh, How did that role become an opportunity for you? So... uh, few years ago, I started taking acting seriously. Um, I had started getting some, so I have a commercial agency in New York City and uh, as well as a modeling agency. The commercial agency was through the years, mostly sending me on for auditions for Macy's commercials, car commercials, things of that sort, Target commercials. And so, uh, you know, at some point they started sending me on a few cat, like auditions for big role like marvel movies and and it was Mm. weird to me because i didn't know the first thing about how to audition for these things but what i recognized was there was a demand that Mm -hmm. even though i didn't really have a resume or even a headshot uh that i i was being called in for these roles so i was like okay there's something going on here. There's there's something brewing. Like there's some sort of demand here. So what I did was I started taking acting classes and I started doing training. I did improv, and, you know, in, in New York. And, um, and you know, I decided to take it seriously. I remember I sat down with my agent um, one year right after Christmas, right before the new year. And I told her, listen, as part of my new year resolution, I want to take acting seriously this next year. And I want to like do this for real. And, uh, and she was pumped. I was pumped. And so we started doing the damn thing. And, um, you know, I started going on, on these auditions and, and I started seeing callbacks. I started seeing the same casting directors calling me back for, for subsequent projects, which is always a good sign, meaning that there's a sort of, there's a trust there that this guy will deliver. And so, yeah, this, 
show came along. And to be honest, I treated it like any other project. Um, and I did my best, you know, I went in, I read for not the role that I'm in now, but I read for uh, the role of Henry. And I remember, you know, I moved on from it after the first uh, audition. And then I got a call from my agent and she was like, listen, listen, they really liked you. They want to fly you out tomorrow to LA for a network test. And I was like, oh, <laughs> snap. Um, because I had lined up two modeling jobs back to back for the next, the next day, which is when I was supposed to fly out, and the day after. And it was with one of my top paying clients that actually I adore. Mm -hmm. And I had committed to those modeling jobs for a number of weeks, if not a month already. So they had me in the books, ready to go, photographers lined up, makeup artists, stylists, all that good stuff. And so I was just such a difficult thing, man. And I, I remember I went through this crisis where I was talking with my modeling agent and he's like, listen, you should do the modeling jobs because A, they're real money. Then, uh, you know, you go do this audition. Look, statistically speaking, you're probably not going to get the job. And then you're going to lose this client that's been paying you really well and really likes uh, likes you. And so, and then on the other side, I got my theatrical agent slash commercial agent saying, listen, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is a no brainer. You need to get yourself on that plane and fucking go to this network test, you know? And so I'm just like being pulled left and right. I'm talking to my dad, I'm talking to my mentors and I just don't know what to do. Long story short, I decide, you know what? I'm going to be a man of my word and I'm going to commit to these model jobs. And I did. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I declined, I declined the network test, which was very painful, but I did it, um, in hopes that maybe they'll still want to see me, you know, at some point. And luckily they did. They were like, all right, well, that sucks that he can't fly out, but, uh, we want him to come back into the New York office, uh, and do another uh, audition. I'm like, okay, cool. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, I don't get to meet everyone in person, but I'm sure I'll do this. I go do it. I end up not getting the job. I understand it's totally fine. I move on. A few days later, I get a call and my agent was like, listen, um, that that show Kung Fu, um, they just got back to me. There's another character that they like you to, uh, they think you're perfect for it. You don't need to cast for it. They know you're good for it. What do you think? And I was like, well, Chris, I don't know, man. What do you think? She's like, this is a no brainer. Take it. And I'm like, okay, all right, cool. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and this role was for Dennis, which is who I'm playing on Kung Fu. And I am just super grateful, fortunate, and stoked to be playing this role because there are a lot of parallels between this character and who I am um, as a person. So a terrible That's basketball player or is, is a that... terrible basketball player, <laughs> okay. a guy yeah. who thinks he could just break into Taiwan and, and <laughs> change the industry. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I say, yeah, I'll, I'll look out for that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Just this asshole basically. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, good work negging uh, the, <laughs> all of your auditions. <laughs> you know, great dating stuff. Made, made them want you more. So good work there. <laughs> you know, I don't know what happened there. I'm just grateful, man. Yeah. For you to be tied to or to be involved with the show Kung Fu, which um, I, I think many people who know about it will know kind of the, the injustice that was done to Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee back in the 70s was supposed to be the, the star character, but they turned him down because he they, they were worried about his accent and how American audiences would receive it. 
So instead, they went with this white dude, David Carradine, who had no martial arts experience. Um, and, you know, event, the show st- still did very, very well. So credit, credit to him and all the, all the people that were involved with it. But it kind of goes down in history as one of the, the injustices to Bruce Lee. So it's really cool that uh, this series is a predominantly Asian cast. And on top of that, the protagonist is, is a female. Yeah, man. It's a, it's a new age, man. It's a, it's a new world. Um, and I think it's super fucking cool, to be honest. Um, you have a lead of this show that is not only Asian, but she is female. Mm. Um, and I think that's, and, and, and the person who plays it, Olivia, she is just a champ. She's, she's so awesome. She's the hardest worker. I mean, she just, there, I have so much respect for her and, and, and for anybody in that sort of a role, honestly, that where you have to constantly toggle between stunts and Kung Fu training, um, choreography of all these fight scenes to yeah. internalizing and memorizing all these lines and constantly just having early, early mornings, late, late nights, day in, day out. And just to, just to manage all this, um, she's just done such an excellent job and I couldn't be more, I'm not just saying this to like publicize the show in a positive way or anything. This is just my honest feelings. Like she is just fucking awesome. And, and we're so lucky to have her uh, leading us in, in this, in this new journey on the, on this new journey that is Kung Fu, you know? And um, yeah, man, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'm learning more and more about the 1970s David Carradine show as we do more interviews, as uh, we talk more about it. And, you know, one thing that Tai Ma mentioned who he plays the father on this show and, you know, you've seen him in, 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 in movies. Every and, Asian oh, dad role. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy's been in rush hour. He's been in arrival. He's been yeah. in the farewell. He's been tiger yeah. tail. Like, the list yeah. move on. The list goes yeah. on. I mean, this yeah. guy's a legend, you know. Mm. Um, Ty's a fucking cool dude. Um, but one thing he mentioned, which I thought was really profound, was, you know, as much shit as Kung Fu gets in terms of, you know, uh, Bruce Lee getting shafted and uh, bringing this idea to the network and, and them thinking that this five, six Asian man cannot be a lead on a show in America. Um as much as this product uh, gets shat on in -hmm. that respect, one cool thing that Ty brought up, and I'm gonna echo him uh, in saying this, is that if you watch that show, um, what really made the show entertaining and successful was all the guest stars. And apparently all the guest stars were Asian American martial artists that were at the peak of their game. We're talking some of the top uh, martial artists, Asian martial artists in the Western world. They were all on this show. And so if you look at it from that respect, we were getting representation, maybe not in the form of the lead of the show, but we were Asian, Asians were getting represent, represented in that show in a sort of roundabout way. Whether it was intentional or not, I am uncertain. But the fact that that's how it came to fruition, I think, is very a very cool, different angle of looking at how it played out. But having said that, obviously, it's super cool and and just an honor. Um, I'll speak for myself, and I think I honestly speak for our our whole whole uh, cast. Is that you know, it's just an honor to be able to be a part of this reboot and to have this 
really well-developed story and uh, that, that consists of family and fighting and Kung Fu and bringing criminals to justice. It's just really cool to be part of this new fully fleshed out show. Yeah, and I, I will say that uh, she, uh, uh, Olivia looks great. Uh, and and Dude, look at me so using badass, look at me using her first name. Um, but yeah, she, she looks great in the trailers that I've seen. And it, is does she have training before this, or did is this something that she picked up to to do for the show? That's your question. Olivia has a dance background, so she choreography wise, that's something that you know is in her uh, her toolkit. Um, but I will say she also just learn things so fucking fast you know not to toot my own horn i think i learn things pretty fast but to to see how she picks things up so fast and sometimes i'll just tell her a random thing there's a random little like joke or something and like it'll be like three four months later i've already forgotten about it and then she'll bring it up like in passing to someone and i, I had completely forgotten about it. and and listen and this is with her memorizing 10 11 episodes worth of worth of lines and all of the fight choreography and doing press interviews because you know she's doing more than the rest of us because she's lead the lead in the show and it's just like with everything that's going on in her life to see her on a weekend and we're hanging out for her to be just so chill and just like cracking jokes and and you know cutting each other down and stuff i mean she's just like she's built for this. I can say that for damn sure. She is built for this. Um, and so I think it's a combination of her dance background, her repertoire in terms of being able to remember choreography and move her body in certain ways, as well as her ability to learn quickly and absorb and retain things uh, in a compound way. Uh, it's, it's this package, I think, that uh, probably the CW saw. It's like, dude, she's She's the one. She is the one. She's the lead. No, no question, hands down. That that's awesome. Uh, and I should I'm be getting commissioned for selling Olivia. I, I was gonna say maybe uh, maybe tell her publicist to listen to this podcast, and maybe maybe I'll get right? some get some credit too. And um... right, right. That's what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> Well, I don't want you to have. I don't want you to give away. Um, you know your role on the show, uh, which debuts April April seventh. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. April 6th or That's April right, 7th? April seventh on the CW. Yep. Awesome. But one question I have to ask is: Are you doing action scenes, or are you allowed to share that? Um, I, you know, I don't think it's any secret, and uh, so I think it's fine to say that I am not doing any acting. Uh, action. I'm not doing any acting. I'm not. I'm not in the show. No, <laughs> I'm not doing action. Is what I meant to say. I'm not doing any action scenes uh, so far, as far as I know in the show. Um, I play uh, the fiance. Uh, so Olivia plays the role of Nikki Shen, who travels to, uh, who basically bypasses college to, to run away, actually, without her family's knowledge, to a Shaolin monastery in China, um, and where she learns Kung Fu. And she comes back to San Francisco to her family's surprise. And she comes back and then she needs to avenge the loss, uh, the murder of her Shifu master, as well as uh, bring criminals to justice in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so uh, in her, her older sister, Althea, I play Althea's fiance, Dennis. Um, and so 
my character, uh, my family comes has is very wealthy, and I play an investor, which is how I met Althea. I was investing in her startup that's part of a bigger incubator program in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I was like a math nerd in high school. She was the popular girl, and uh, you know, as I grew older, I grew out of this math nerd phase. Though I'm still a nerd at heart, which what you'll see on the show. Uh, but I grew into who I am now, which is apparently a little bit more dapper uh, mm-hmm. and a little bit more easy on the eyes, if you will. And um, so, yeah, so I'm not a Kung Fu expert. I know. Well, well, you are easy on the eyes. And can I read this, uh, this message that you sent me? Um, because we had to reschedule this. Wow. Oh, crazy yes, week. Yes. Had to shoot a shirtless scene earlier today. Had to prep a few days for it. <laughs> so so describe prepping for it because i you know I, i've seen the photos and you know you you've certainly gotten jacked in the certain year in the past couple you know year or so you know which makes me think we could have used that guy on our basketball team but that's a different story for a different <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> maybe maybe you would have gotten some more rebounds if you had that body but um <laughs> what, what kind of prep work went into like i would think that if i had a body as jacked as yours i would just you know roll into roll onto set and take my shirt off and be like all right who wants some but um <laughs> what does it mean to to prep for a scene like that well I, my main problem is i love to eat and specifically <laughs> what i love to eat are oreos doritos oh. and coca-cola and mm. i i like a beer I'm, I'm not huge on alcohol but you know i don't mind a beer and so those are the things I gravitate towards. So yeah, I mean, the prep for like a, for like a scene like that is sometimes they'll give me a heads up. So I I have like a week or two. Luckily I have some amazing castmates, Gavin, uh, who plays Evan Hartley on the show. He's an amazing dude. And, you know, it's the CW, right? So more or less me, Gavin, me and Eddie, we, uh, Eddie who plays Henry, we all have shirtless scenes strewn throughout the show. So you know, we've come up with routines that will like, well, mostly it's, I don't know if they share with each other, but I reach out to Gavin and Eddie and get some feedback, see if like I'm, there's any holes I'm missing in terms of, you know, how to optimize my routine. So yeah, you know, just like pumping iron and doing tons of burpees and and just, I'll tell you like in between, I don't know, maybe I'm obsessive or, or maybe I'm not doing it enough. I can't tell because I'm sort of new to this, but like in between takes, you know, this was a scene where I'm like literally in just a towel, like, you know, when you're coming out of the bathroom, right? So it's over yeah. your the bottom half of your body. So my torso is totally revealed. So, uh, and the whole scene's like that, right? It's not like I come out and put a shirt on. The whole scene, the whole conversation is is me without any shirt on. So my thing was like, you know, I borrowed some, some dumbbells from the stunts gym. I had the prop stylist, Jordan, uh, you know, shout out to Jordan. He brought these, these little push-up things for me. So in between takes i would be in there like doing like just reps you know and like sort of doing like uh you know just 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 keeping my body like like tight you know what i mean mm-hmm. and so uh it was just a lot of that and then right after the scene was wrapped you know i went and got triple o's which is basically like a carl jr of like of, of, of bc <laughs> i don't know if it's in toronto but it's like a canadian like 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 triple yeah. uh, uh carl i got a I got a cookies and cream shake Ooh. i got sweet potato fries with chipotle sauce Ooh. i got their classic burger with bacon it was delicious 
and now you have a one pack and, and now <laughs> I, I got nothing it's just flat man it's just flat, you know <laughs> well i'm gonna have to let you go so you can get back into the gym so that you know you don't let down the cw team but i wanted to ask you one more question with the recent uh, attention to uh the violence towards the asian american pacific islander community do you see the show addressing these issues? Has the writing changed in any way? or Because you guys are really, this is a golden opportunity for you guys to, to address it and be the leaders to take on this issue. Will your body just go cold? With the uptick in the anti-Asian violence that's happening, you know, in all parts of the world, you know, I want to know how you guys have been impacted by that. It's absolutely horrific and terrible. It's terrible. It really hurts us uh, uh, to see this happening in our communities. And every time I hear about a new instance of this happening, even in a place like New York City, where I live, it's just like, really? Like, really? I worry about my friends. I worry about my coworkers. I worry about you guys. I realize that in the past few conversations I've had with my parents who are seniors, Mm. A common topic is, are you okay? Are you being safe? That's horrifying. I'm what curious, I do you know, what kind of discussions to... or what should we expect regarding that? Yeah, great question. Um, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, what is really, what I really appreciate about the writing team and also the executive producers and showrunners of this show is the scrutiny of details um, such as cultural cultural nuances. You know, for you and me, we grew up in a household where you come home and just naturally you take your shoes off when you enter the household, right? Yeah. And that's something that we as Asian Americans just, that we just do because that's part of our culture, but not everyone is aware of that. So the scrutiny of the details like that on this show and like, oh, oh, hey, you know, you're in the house now. So, oh, right. Yeah. So you're not going to be wearing shoes. Of course. Yeah. And also yeah. things like, oh, on, on the on the mother's side, grandparents are addressed differently than on the father's side, mm. grandparents. Yeah. Right. You have white pool on the uh, mother's side. And then on the father's side, you have uh, nine, nine. Right. Yeah. In terms of the maternal uh, figure. So things like that, you know, and, and, and what do we call our parents when, when we're in the home, you know, like, do we say mom, mom. dad, or do we, yeah, or, yeah, exactly. No, yo, David, right? like yo, our, Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yo, yo uh, I can't think of that one, David. Um, <laughs> but like, but like Baba or like ma mama yeah. or whatever it may be. Right. And to actually address these, these small subtleties, I, I really appreciate that, especially having lived in Taiwan for so many years. So sometimes I've been asking, Hey, Tony, like, how do you do this? How do you do that? Well, let's make sure we reflect that in the show. That's been cool. Also, just like, listen, I didn't know until being on this show and talking with the other cast members who honestly have been doing this in terms of being in the in the uh, industry longer than me. You know, I'm I, I'm kind of a rookie in this in this industry. I I'm, I'm very very much a veteran in the modeling industry, but in terms of acting, I'm humbly you know a rookie, and so to hear that there really has not been a show on TV in, in Western culture that has been like an Asian American family that's not like a comedic series mm -hmm. is very 
progressive. It's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's mind blowing. I, I didn't really think about it that way. You had fresh off the boat that was, you know, had been renewed a number of seasons, but that was more of a sitcom. I mean, yeah. it was literally a sitcom. And and yeah. and then you have, you know, Kim's Convenience, uh, that was a Canadian show, but eventually made on the Netflix. And you know, and and this is all great, but like our show is you will see there's like a there there are very serious issues being addressed. Uh, not just within an Asian American family and its peripheral components, but also just like society at large uh, in terms of Western uh, issues that we're doing in Western culture, whether it be Black Lives Matter or whether it be feminine identity in Western culture, sexual assault, all these, these are, these are very prevalent issues that you will see reflected in the show centered around a core Asian American, uh, Asian American family unit. Um, mm-hmm. And that is fucking cool. And I've been, realize, I, I've been realizing through the uh, six or so months that I've been here, having all these conversations with everyone that this is unprecedented. And for the CW to put the, their resources behind this show is awesome. And I, and I think, you know, it's just, it's going to be cool, man, for the for the Asian American Islander community. It's going to be really empowering. It's going to be uh, it, representation in all formats is always uh, empowering and helpful. Yeah, and I think that the family aspect of it, in not through the sitcom lens, I think is important. I'll be completely frank. I'm not a fan of Fresh Out the Boat. I I don't think that that show really does anything for for us in our representation. Um, and, and not to say that it's poor writing or anything like that, but I think our first step in shouldn't necessarily be something as comedic and out there as as that show is. So I, I'm definitely very very curious to see how this show uh which is going to tackle some very very serious issues um while you know pandering to a very very wide audience how it's going to deliver and really how it's going to how it's going to inspire people like you said um so i I think it's super cool that you're going to be a part of it uh final thought If, if the cw needs a guy that likes to run into scenes and get shot like I'm your guy. All right. Like usually I'm like, you know, the third guy in line that, you know, because the first guy, there's a lot of pressure on him. He falls backwards. The second guy has to sell, you know, the force of impact, but the third guy, you know, no one really cares about him. And that's, that's, you're that guy. You're, you're the one. I'm the one. So tell, uh, tell the, (laughs) the writers of uh, Kung Fu that uh, you, you have a guy in mind for a scene. Uh, You know, I'm a step ahead of you, bro. (laughs) Texting him right now. I mean, and by that, I mean, I'm the second guy. (laughs) (laughs) there you go there you go uh tony thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about this and i and i can't wait to 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 see the the show i'm super excited i appreciate it man i truly do and uh thanks for having me on man yep take care you too man